early in the spring when we round up the dogie. We mark them and brand them and bob off their tails. Round up the horses, load up the chuck wagon, then send the dogies out on the long trail. We'll be tired, I owe long, you little dogie. It's your misfortune and none of mine. Dreamers. Great-hearted adventurers who were unpractical to the point of magnificence. A courteous brotherhood, strong in attack but weak in defense, who could conquer but could not hold. Now all the vast territory they had won was to be at the mercy of men like Ivy Peters, who would never dare anything, never risk anything. They would drink up the mirage, dispel the morning freshness, root out the great brooding spirit of freedom, the generous easy life of the great landholders. The space, the color, the princely carelessness of the pioneer they would destroy and cut up into profitable bits as the match factory splinters the primeval forest. Well, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, that little quote was uh, from Willa Cather's nice little novel or novella. It, it's only about 100 pages, but it, it's called A Lost Lady. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this episode. But first, I want to talk about my hiatus, where I've been, what I've been up to, and what's what I'm looking ahead uh, towards in this podcast. Um, now, normally, when summer comes, I, I go to the United States. I, as you probably know, I live in China or Taiwan. And when this podcast started, I was in Taiwan. Now I'm in China. And I usually spend the summers in the United States. And normally I can do episodes or I have enough episodes in the can that it, you know, I can continue to to publish and put up episodes during that time. This year I didn't have enough episodes in the can and I didn't really have time to do much recording. Like last summer I was able to record um, that Dreiser novel, An American Tragedy, and a few Philip K. Dick things. But th this this summer I just didn't have the time. I was doing too much. I was a little bit too busy. Um, I was thinking of doing, uh, start this series I'm going to do, and I'm going to talk about that um, now. Uh, the series I'm thinking about, it, it's kind of in my head, I'm calling it 20th Century Girls. Essentially the idea is to look at American women writers from the 20th century. Uh, and originally the plan was to start with like Edith Wharton and then kind of work my way through chronologically. I just had so much trouble getting into Edith Wharton, I tried to read House of Mirth twice, and although I, the novel wasn't particularly difficult, it just really wasn't, I just wasn't in the mood for that kind of writing, I guess. So I just was really struggling with that, and I tried Jane Bowles, and and she's really great, and I, I'm excited looking forward to her in the future. I just couldn't get episodes recorded the way things were this summer. Just a little bit busy. So anyways, that's what's coming ahead. I, I, now that I'm back in China, and I have time, and, and kind of the the solitary uh, living that I need to, to do these episodes consistently, I'm going to start this series. So informally, I'm going to call it 20th Century Girls, but you know, it's, it's going to be 20th Century Women Writers. And I'm going to start with Willa Cather, uh, A Lost Lady, and do some of her later novels, about six of them, six shorter novels she wrote in the later 20s and 30s. It's kind of a continuation of the series I did about a year ago with Willa Cather's work, uh, where we looked at her kind of great epic frontier novels that she started her career with, like um, the Song of the Lark and the Pioneers and all that. Oh, oh Pioneers, sorry. Uh, what was the other one? Um, <clears throat> anyways, I forgot the name of all of them. But 
Uh, this kind of continues that, but you know, this first novel we look at, A Lost Lady, is another novel about the frontier, about pioneer life and the changes in pioneer life. So it kind of continues those themes, but her later novels kind of explore other things as well. So I'm, I'm excited to look into, into what she did in the, in the 20s and 30s. From then, I'm going to, I, I was, I'm not going to do a chronological anymore. I'm just going to kind of go through these volumes of the Library of America as I have them in hand. You know, because I live in China, I'm always shoveling books back and forth. So as I have volumes, I'm, gonna, I'm going to record them. But definitely we'll look at Zora Neale Hurston. We'll look at Mary McCarthy, Jane Bowles. We'll look, I'll, I'll try to get the Edith Wharton out, Flannery O'Connor, Carson McCullers. And there's a few other people I'm missing there, but um, uh, Gertrude Stein, of course. But uh I will, as, as I have volumes in hand, I'm going to, to do those. So it's going to be, first we're going to look at uh, the, these Willa Cather novels. Then I think I'm going to take up that anthology of 25 uh, women science fiction writers from the 20th century called The Future's Female. It's recently published. It's a special publication of Library of America, not in their main series, different font, different kind of binding. But I'm going to throw it in there anyways because um, it's been recently released and, you know, you know, I like science fiction, so... Uh, I'll do that. Then we'll do some Mary McCarthy novels, and then we'll see what I have uh, have available. So, anyways, that's what I'm going to do. Looking forward, I'm hoping to go back to um, publishing two episodes a week, as I have. I just don't have any episodes in the can. So, until I kind of build up that supply, it's going to be uploading them more or less as I as I record them. Uh, so, anyways, let me just give you my thoughts on a, a lost lady um, in this episode, and then we'll. Um, give you yeah I'll just just tell you what I, my response to this I read this book actually just just yesterday and a little bit th this morning so you're getting kind of it, it fresh in my mind uh, a lost lady was published in 1923 so it's kind of her follow-up novel to one of ours which was her World War one novel and I think that's the one that won her the Pulitzer Prize and it's kind of a return to her the frontier novels that that made her so so famous and as her career began you know remember we and, and if you want to go back to hear my thoughts some of those go back to about a year ago or maybe a little bit more than a year ago i have episodes on old pioneers the song of the lark my antonia and one of ours those four four novels the first three of those are kind of a trilogy and they're kind of seen as an informal trilogy of the frontier and they're all about the change in the frontier usually by looking at individual characters or or families um, I also looked at the Troll Garden in that series, and that does, has a lot to do with the contrast between the city and the frontier. That's something she does a lot in The Song of the Lark as well, which was, of course, about a young girl who tries to start a singing career by going to Chicago. And, and you know, so she's really interested in this interaction between the frontier and kind of emerging American capitalism, right? So, um, you know, I guess the, the, the frontier mythology is still very powerful I, I think kind of of the old west of, of freedom I, I do you know that's really being deconstructed these days I'm thinking of like Deadwood of course is a, is a wonderful TV series that that's set in a frontier but it's really about the corruption of that frontier by capitals almost from the beginning right uh, there was never this kind of golden age of the frontier um, and Willa Cather I, I still think sort of believes in this heroic pioneer Days, at least some of her characters believe very strongly on that, but you know she she shows how it gets broken down by by the emergence of capitalism and 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 
a big business and all that. And if you read historical accounts of the frontier of the West, I should say, these days they often talk about that, how really the West was business. It was the state. There wasn't this kind of lawless period so much. And when there was conflict, it was often conflict between frontiers, settlers, and, and capitalists, right? Like some of the range wars or the, you know, the struggle in the mining towns between the capitalist class and then the often immigrant working class. You know, so all this I think is, is in the background. And it's something Catherine, I think, really understood very well. And there's a lot of, it's in, in A Lost Lady, there's a lot of malaise about this, especially through the main character. And a lot of it, I think, is Catherine's voice here. But, you know, technically it's, it's the, the, not the narrator, but our main observer, uh, Niall is his name. And he's the one who, who kind of observes this change in the frontier. So anyway, it's a brief overview of this story. It's, it's a very simple plot, actually. Um, again, the, the novel itself was only 80, 90, 98 pages in Library of America edition, so it's not, it's not very long at all. And it's, it's a really, really short study of one young man growing up in, in Colorado. His name is N Niall Herbert. I don't know if it's Neil or Niall, it's spelled N-I-E-L, so I think it's, it's Niall. Niall Herbert, and we, we, when we, the novel begins, he's a young man, and by the end, he's, he's a young adult. Uh, when he starts, he's a child, I mean, and by the end, he's a young man, a, a young adult. He's just beginning his career, and he kind of returns. It kind of reminds me of Old Pioneers in that you have a character who leaves the, leaves the frontier town, comes back and sees the changes. And that's that's sort of what happens here, but it's much more intimate. It's not so, even though Willa Cather and the narrator talk about the changes in the American frontier uh, in more broad terms. This is a much more intimate study, and so it's almost an or more allegorical approach to this, in that it's really about how Niall Herbert becomes increasingly disillusioned with uh, an older woman, but still relatively young woman, uh, Mrs. Marion Forrester. Um, and she's married to a much older man. She's his second wife uh, man named Captain Daniel Forrester. So we kind of have three generations right here from the beginning of the story. Uh, Captain Daniel Forrester being kind of the old pioneer, the epic pioneer time, um, even though he himself was sort of a capitalist. He, he was building the railroads, but he's representative of, of kind of the, the pioneer days the uncorrupted pioneer days, right? And then his circle is, is built around that. Marion Forrester is from California, and we forget the story of how she meets Daniel Forrester towards the end of the novel. Um, but basically she uh, falls in love with that man and that, that's whatever he represents, and she goes to live with him in, in Colorado. And But she's younger, right? So she's a different generation. She's a generation that remembered kind of the good old frontier days as something real, uh, but then kind of emerges through the transformation into into capitalism. Daniel Forrester, he goes through this as well, the captain, he goes through this as well, but he does it later in his life. And after, he actually, there's a point where he has a stroke. So by giving him a stroke, the Willa Cather is able to kind of cut off his kind of conception and his perception of, of this change. He doesn't really feel it because he's, he's kind of out of his mind um, by the time that's really um, taking root. And then you have Niall Herbert, who's kind of born in the already modern 
capitalist in emerging industrial West. So he remembers the past in almost mythical terms. So when he looks at the foresters, he sees the foresters in these mythical terms of representing, representing the pioneer past. Right? But he never actually experienced that pioneer past in any significant degree. So I think Cather does something really interesting with these three generations of characters all observing this change, but because they're at different stages in their life, they experience it quite, quite differently. I think it's a really a strong point in the, in the novel, and it helps make this, takes this very short story, really a short novel, and, and allows it to talk about a lot of, a lot of different things and a, lot, and, and a broad historical sweep, in fact. Um, uh, so basically the plot again, so Niall Herbert begins as a young, as, as a boy, growing up in this town, he meets the, the foresters and he becomes enamored with Marion Forrester, who he sees in almost uh, supernatural uh, levels. It, it's, it's a kind of an infatuation, there's certainly a physical attraction he has for her, but also he's attracted to her bearing and her attitude and all that. Then. We learn more about them and he, you know, over the course of a few years in the first half of the novel. The second half of the novel is his return after he was like in Massachusetts Institute of Technology studying architecture or something. And he comes back to the to the to Colorado and he witnesses in the rapid decline of the Forrester family. Uh, Captain Forrester, who already had a stroke, gets sicker and sicker and loses his mind and has another stroke. Finally, he's an invalid and he dies all in the course of a year. And then he sees what happens to Mrs. Marion Forster after that. And then he sees the disillusionment. He sees what she's become. He sees her, her, her stupidity, her, uh, her, some of her more vile characteristics, her superficiality. Um, and, you know, he just feels a lot of, uh, he just, it's kind of a, what a disillusionment about the Foresters is what he feels. But he also sees the, the burning down of the estate almost um, because of an old classmate of his an old kind of contemporary of, of Niall Herbert's, a man named Ivy Peters. He is presented early in the novel in, in a bit of gratuitous terms as a vile sadist almost. But when he grows up, he becomes a lawyer and uses his lawyering power to become rich. And he becomes rich basically by preying on the old pioneers, namely the foresters. It's, it's implied he does this to other people as well, but we only really see what he does to the foresters where he basically sucks that estate dry. Eventually, after the captain dies, Marion Forrester moves back to California, goes eventually to Buenos Aires, remarries, and, and through, a, through a reporting secondhand, Niall, much later in his life, learns that, that Mrs. Forrester um, died, and, and kind of that story, story ends that way. And that, that's the whole novel, essentially. Um, I think the whole thing is kind of compelling and, and nice. It's a nice quick read, only about three hours, and I think it's worth picking up, especially if you liked Old Pioneers or My Antonia, because it builds up those themes. It just does it maybe in more allegorical fashions. Um, and there's moments in which Willa Cather kind of really states her thesis. I quoted one of these early on in this, right when this podcast opened, where she's basically saying like the West was the land of the dreamers, the go-getters, the adventurers who created a community, who had solidarity. And within a generation that gets taken over by by the landholders and the, the, essentially the capitalist class who just basically see the frontier as something to profit from, not from something to make a living from. And, and it just tears up that, that those communities and those people's lives. And, and that's, that's the story we have here. In fact, that chapter, that, the, the ending of that quote I started this podcast with goes, 
All the way from the Missouri to the mountains, this generation of shrewd young men trained to petty economics by hard times would do exactly what Ivy Peters had done when he drained the forest, Forester Marsh. Um, now, the, the term here, Forester Marsh, kind of works in two ways. One is he's draining, he's literally draining the estate, like sucking it dry through his machinations. He like tears down a barn house, right, to, make, to try to raise property values on the farm. Doesn't really seem to work, but... It's, it's really symbolic here of, of destroying the old pioneer ways. But even more so is the drain, literally the drain into the marsh. Because when Captain Forrester took this land and settled on this land, he kept a marsh that would have been profitable land it had it been drained, but he kept it there for its beauty. Um, because it had some kind of meaning for him, some sentiment for him. And the, the land gets, uh, as soon as Ivy Peters basically gets a hold of the land, basically is a, got like a power of attorney over it he drains the swamp because he wants to again raise the property values he doesn't care what it meant for captain forrester who is by this point an invalid so the character of ivy peters he only shows up in a few chapters actually the whole thing is 16 18 chapters um, part one is nine chapters part two is nine chapters um, and ivy peters only shows up i think in basically one chapter in the first part and then he shows up in two or three in the end but he's in the background of the whole story because he's this kind of unstoppable force. I was actually reminded a little bit of Frank Norris's works about California, where you had this, you know, the, the, the overpowering of, of the power of the railroad, right? That just comes in and devastates these communities. But it's presented as a kind of an unstoppable force. Will Cather has that same feeling about this community. And that really, the Ivy Peters can't be stopped, right? And certainly not stopped by the old pioneer generation who's, who's getting old, who's kind of stuck in their ways, that really can't adapt. And it can't be stopped by that middle generation either, Mrs. Marion Forrester, who is more about putting on airs, of presenting herself properly, never really being about, never really understanding the, the economics of the frontier, but also not having the physical capacity to be the, the pioneer that her husband was. I do want to say, though, that, and this is something that when you go back and you reread the first chapter after reading the novel, that is quite clear, I think, is Cather does see this first generation, Captain Forster's generation, as a bit of a, as a, bit of a facade. And this is something that, that Marion Forrester kind of continues in her life of putting up airs. There's a, um, well, let me just read how the Forrester place is described in essentially the first page of the book. Quote, the Forester Place, as everyone called it, was not at all remarkable. The people who lived there made it seem much larger and finer than it was. The house stood on a low rung hill, nearly a mile east of town, a white house with a wing, a sharp sloping roof to shed the snow. It was encircled by porches too narrow for modern notions of comfort, supported by a fussy, fragile pillars of, a, of the time, when every honest stick of timber was tortured by the turning lathes into something hideous. Stripped of its vines and denuded of its shrubbery, the house would probably have been ugly enough. It stood close to a fine cottonwood grove that threw sheltering arms to left and right and grew all down the hillside behind it. Thus placed on the hill against the bristling grove, it was the first thing that one saw coming into Sweetwater by rail and the last thing one saw on departing. Uh, departing. End quote. So she's saying right away, I think, that there's something kind of fake about this, this image of, 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 of the heroic pioneer days um, and it's presented here in the ugliness of, of the house as, as we read this novel we learn that they do have guests people do visit this house but they only see the parlor 
right? So they have dinner parties, and there's actually two dinner parties in the, the novel, both which really center on um, perceptive, like putting on airs of a type uh, of a sort, uh, but at very different points in Mrs. Marion Forster's life. But no one ever sees the rest of the house, right? It, this, house, this part of the house looks nice. It, it's, it looks like an upper-class house. But after Captain Forrester is an invalid and, and wheelchair-bound and, and some, for most of his life actually bed-bound at, at the end, um, you know, after a, a series of strokes, uh, people start to come into the house and they start like taking an inventory of what they're going to buy at auction when the stuff is finally put on auction. It's pretty horrible to, 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 to read, actually. But what's exposed in those chapters is that behind that parlor, behind that place where they receive guests, the house is kind of small and smelly and it's got a bad kitchen and, and nothing is really that well maintained. Um, now part of that certainly because Forrester had enough on her plate taking care of her dying husband, but also the implication is that it never really was that nice, right? And in, in the opening pages, they were told the house is actually fairly ugly. Now that can be an endearing thing in the heroic frontier days, right? Because, you know, those were made by the pioneers, constructed by themselves. Uh, maybe added to from time to time, they're going to be a little bit ugly, perhaps. But um, by the end of the novel, we learn just how much was invested in in presenting the that opening part of the house, the parlor part, where they where guests were received in such a nice way. But it was just a, you know, it was a it was a false front, right? In the same way, the wealth of the foresters is a false front because Ivy Peters is able to so quickly tear down that estate and, and rob it of whatever vitality it had left for his own profit. We see that like the financial footing of this estate is not that not that strong either. Um, now, there's one thing I mentioned where uh, I quoted it. Quotes. Uh, where is it? Quote, when every honest stick of timber was tortured by the turning lathe into something hideous. Quote. Uh, when I first read that, I thought, is this novel going to have some ecological components to it? And, and in fact, it does in a way. It, it's not a major theme of the novel, but I was struck by the mention of, of this, this. And then I kept it in mind as I kept reading of, of was there going to be an ecological component? Because that's another thing that historians of the West have written a lot about these days. Um, you know, by these days, the last 20 years or so, is the ecology of the frontier, right? A lot of environmental historians actually specialize in the American West because it's such a rich um, field to study, whether it's the death of the buffalo or the clearing of the plains. Uh, and if you haven't read uh, William Cronin's wonderful, beautiful book, uh, Nature's Metropolis, maybe the best book about the American frontier, um, although it's, it's a story of the frontier, but it's all about Chicago, and, and that's that's really key to the thesis of that novel or that, or that book. Um, you, sh you should read that. Um, but I kept it in mind, right? And in, right away in chapter two, part one, chapter two, uh, we, we meet Ivy Peters and, and they're basically hanging out, Ivy Peters and, and Neil, not Niall. They're, they're hanging out. And one thing that Ivy Peters does is that he tortures a woodpecker, right? So they capture this woodpecker. They're, they're, instead of shooting it, he captures it and actually blinds the woodpecker with a with a knife, cutting its eyes, and then watches it fly away. And it, of course, it bumps into trees and tries to survive. It's it's really kind of horrific uh, little passage. I'm thinking, oh, geez, what am I going to get into in this novel? Um, it would have been tough to read if there would have been a lot more scenes like that. 
but they, they you know and then they finally you know have to kill kill the woodpecker but this torturing of this woodpecker something that gives ivy peters all this joy right and of course later on he's going to be the one drained in the swamp tearing down the legacy of the frontier generation seeing the west as simply land to be exploited land to be uh, turned into profit to be bought and sold whatever however you want to look at it he doesn't see the land as precious or the lives the animals the plants the ecosystem as as precious, and of course that's what's happened to the West as it's been gradually replaced by by the farms and the ranches and the mines, the big business, and that's such a big story of the late nineteenth century West, and it continues. It's a story that continues, right? The seizure of the commons, along with ecological devastation, they go hand in hand, right? Uh, we see that throughout American history. Is first you seize the commons, you steal land from the Indians, you you know, or you. You seize that land from nature and commodify it, right? The, bu- the beavers become, you know, beaver hats, beaver skin hats that are sold in Paris and their stocks, you know, stuck it into stocks. You know, the same way people were being commodified through the slave trade and all that. That's, you know, that's the story of America, largely. And it continued in the West, right? And that's a big blow against this kind of myth- mythological period of the West. And I think by Cather, by, by making the narrator young, he's able to only look at that pioneer period from the point of view of, from the point of view of the, of memory and of mythology, right? Captain Forrester, and especially Marion Forrester even more so. And I'm probably underplaying how much Marion Forrester was the myth for, for Nile. Um, you know, that it's, it's just this mythology. It's not... It's not necessarily that real, right? I think that's implied here. You know, had we got the story from Captain Forrester's point of view, we would have got a different tale, right? Remember, he was a railroad man to begin with. So he was already part of that corruption. He was part of the, the, the forces that were going to change the West into something different already. In that sense, it's very different from Old Pioneers or My Antonia, in which you have novels from kind of more of a grassroots perspective. Now, in part one, after all this is sort of set up, we get really the, the, inter, the story about the interaction between Niall Herbert and, and the Forrester family. Um, now, part of this, it, it's kind of interesting, uh, even if you want to set aside all the frontier stuff, the story is a kind of interesting look at a young man or boy's infatuation with an older woman who he finds is beautiful and charming and, and clever, and then disillusionment with that figure over time, right? Like, you know, it, it could be the same thing with a first love, right? Someone has a first love, and, and when you look back on it, you find out the person wasn't that great to begin with, right? But for a child, you know, to children who are so impressionable um, by appearances and, and things like that, you know, the, the impact of, of Mrs. Forrester on his psychology is so, so strong, and it's such a big part of how he looks at his whole world. Right? And that's what the really much of part one is about, is building that thing and then how it starts to slowly be be undercut it's not really fully undercut until the second half of the novel but in the first half of the novel you start to see the legs being cut out from under that that perception right um now originally she's or mrs forrester is interested in nile as a potential companion for a young woman named constance ogden who's kind of a, a, an association, associate family of the Foresters. They're both kind of that older generation. 
Um, and she kind of thinks, you know, maybe Niall and Constance can, can maybe get together and she tries to set them up a little bit. Um, but anyways, that's just a side plot, right? But a lot of this, I think there's actually two whole chapters, maybe it's chapter three and four of part one, that are essentially a dinner party in which Niall gets invited and then Constance Ogden is there and then they hear the captain's stories and he tells the story of his past and you know, of the frontier and all these these things. This contrasts with later in the novel where Captain Forrester can only look at sundials and look at his flowers and you know he's basically an invalid. But we get this the, kind of the, the his retelling of the glorious days of of, of the frontier. Um, now it's at the same time though that the first signs are there between um, a man named Ellinger and Mrs. Forrester and their relationship because part of the disillusionment of of Nile and and generally the, ex, the kind of the breaking down of the image of Mrs. Forrester comes of the revelation of this affair between a, um, a very big man he's presented as, as very big Frank Ellinger a bachelor um, and and he's at this party and then there's really a strong sign of sexual tension between Marion Forrester and and Frank Ellinger and as we learn later on in the novel that they have this they're lovers they, they have they have they're having an affair and it's not clear how long that was going on or when it started I mean, because all this is from the point of view of a boy who's just kind of learning these things and, and learning how the world works um, but clearly by chapter five it's clear you know that, that there is an affair between Ellinger and and Forrester even though we're getting this from the point of view of a child it's, it's very clear it's happening although it's not stated really directly I think until part two of, of the novel um, and throughout all of part one, I think Niles' affection for the captain, affection for Marion Forrester, only seems to grow. There's no big blows to it. It's just the seeds are planted for the seeds are planted of what will be the root of the, his disillusionment in the second half. Part of it's the affair. Part of it is the financial crisis that's beginning to hit the whole region, and particularly the Forrester family they're they're getting hit more and more by the ups and downs of the overall national economy there, there's kind of a, a a fragileness to it but since, since we're getting this from the point of view of a of, of a child it's not presented as catastrophically as it is in the second half but it was all there to begin with right the, the financial weakness the 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 affair that happens or at least in literature happens so often in the in those winter summer romances it's all there, is my point. Now, by the end of part one, Niall's beginning to study law. He eventually goes to study architecture instead at MIT, but for a while he's going to become a lawyer like Ivy Peters. So I don't know if Willa Cather is just trying to say that this was a road that could have led him to become another Ivy Peters, you know, because, you know, Ivy Peters is presented as, as sadistic and, and vile, but there's a lot of lawyers who do vicious things who aren't torturing animals, right? They're, they're just doing their job, and maybe that's somewhere, that's a path that, that Niall could have taken. Um, and that, that's maybe suggested here. But uh, anyways, there's a passage, this is in chapter seven, where we see the hints that this estate, this Forrester family is beginning to be, you know, face its decline. Quote, early in June, when the captain's roses were just coming on, his pleasant labors were interrupted. One morning, an alarming telegram reached him. He cut it open with his garden shears, came into the house and asked his wife to telephone for Judge Pomeroy, a savings bank one in which he was largely interested had failed in Denver. That evening, the captain and his lawyer went west on the express. The judge 
when he was giving Niall final instructions about the office business, told him he was afraid the captain was bound to lose a good deal of money. Mrs. Forrester seemed unaware of any danger. She went to the station to see her husband off, spoke of his errand merely as a business trip. Niall, however, felt a foreboding gloom. He dreaded poverty for her. She was one of the people who ought always to have money. Any retrenchment of her generous way of living would be a hardship for her, would be unfitting. She would not be herself in strained circumstances. So, uh, so he's aware of something's going wrong here, but it's not clear from his point of view how much she knows or how much she's putting on airs. By the end of the novel, you know Mrs. Forrester probably knows how bad things are. She's not really smart enough to handle them. Maybe not is enough in the know. And this leaves her helpless when her husband falls ill and has his first stroke and, and gets progressively worse. Um, right. But another part of this story, though, is we're once again reminded that Forrester was not, he wasn't like Daniel Boone. He wasn't that generation of frontiers, of pioneers. He wasn't like the people in Old Pioneers or Maya Antonia. He was a he was a capitalist, right? He's part, again, he's, he's planting the seeds of the forces that are going to destroy his estate eventually, right? The railroads, the banks, you know, investment, all these things that, that in Catherine's view is destroying that frontier world are, he was a part of, he helped build it. He invested in them directly. And, and Mrs. Forrester continues to do this later on, but she does it in a, perhaps an even you know in a less well-informed way leading to the ultimate decline of her family and her or state i mean she doesn't have a family by that point but i mean it's basically just her husband but the decline of her estate so part one and then ends with the captain falling ill having a stroke his first stroke and then um niall going off to to college so um let me just say a few words about part two, uh, I think I already kind of hinted at, at what happens there. Um, as chapter or as part two opens, you have Niall returning to to this town. Runs into Ivy, who's already become a lawyer. He's already kind of doing his work on the Forrester family. Uh, we find that there's suggestions that for Mrs. Forrester uh, is still having an affair with. Um, Ellinger, although that comes to an end when they get word that he married to that that young girl Constance another kind of uh, Maybe not winter summer more like a summer spring romance and And she berates him on the phone. She gets really, she's really jealous about that and she you know It's another she puts up air so well. I mean she kind of hid the affair fairly well not I mean some people knew about it, but she you know, but when she first hears about this, she calls him and it's like, well, why didn't you tell me? This is where you should have your honeymoon. And she's all polite, but eventually she breaks down due to jealousy and, and flips out on him on the phone. You know, that's kind of another symbol of, I think, the breakdown of her, of, of the whole state, right? Um, Captain Forrester is getting progressively sicker um, due to the stroke. Uh, he forgets who he is at one point, even talking about himself in the third person. He spends most of his time like looking at flowers or at one point playing with a sundial, but basically he's losing his mind. And the, the, the estate's being lost, being gobbled up by Ivy Peters, who basically has the power to do what he wants. He's been granted that by Mrs. Forrester. Mrs. Forrester's not, again, not really smart enough to 
fight that and she's got some kind of venial hopes of still making money right like instead of investing with people she trusts and knows and safe investments she gives the money to ivy peters in hopes that he'll make a lot of money for her but actually what he does is he just kind of runs off with with that money um so the force like the force would become more and more helpless financially just as captain forrester becomes physically physically less more and more helpless um and so along with his his decline is her decline and it's she declines in part because she really can't handle taking care of this this old man and she's not really uh, psychologically capable of it. And if you ever cared for an alien uh, family member, you know what it's like, just how much that, that wears on you. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's essentially like a post-traumatic stress inducing kind of experience to take care of someone who's really um, that ill. Um, but that's what she goes through. And, and the neighbors know and the neighbors start to become locusts, actually, literally coming into the house and taking a tally of what they want to get when the house is finally put on auction, right? Now, in chapter, in part two, chapter six, Forrester finally dies. There's a very, very lonely funeral where he's been abandoned by most of his, his comrades. Most of the people of his generation have moved on or they're, they're doing something else. They just abandoned him. So there's really nothing left of that generation, again, symbolizing the whole transformation of the West. Um, now, after this, Mr. Ogden, Constant Ogden's father, tries to get a pension for Forrester, but he's not able to do that because Ivy Peters basically has a stranglehold over this, the estate. Um, and he eventually gets richer and richer off oil and land and other kinds of lawyering things he, he does. And, and Neil, through all this, his perception of, of Mrs. Forrester changes. It's all been exposed and whatever ideal, idealism he had for her is washed away. Um, and, and that's really what the story is about. So it parallels that story of this changing attitude about a, an aging woman uh, from youthful idealization to, to kind of contempt and, and a little bit of disgust. Not fully hatred in any way. In fact, at the end, when he hears about her in Buenos Aires, he thinks about taking a trip, but then he learns she, she died. So no, that's not going to happen. Uh, I actually think chapter, part two, chapter eight is one of the most powerful in the novel in that we see Mrs. Forrester after her husband dies with everything around her falling apart, still trying to put on airs where she has a dinner party for, for Niall and some of the other young men in town trying to do it the old ways. And it parallels the dinner scene in part one. It's all about putting up airs, but there's something that Niall observes is that none of the boys, none of the young men at this dinner party really want to talk they're all kind of interested in business they're they're kind of crude materialists and, and kind of boring people uh and they don't even like the food that much so you know she's sweated over a stove all those hours to make a meal that no one's going to really appreciate that much she's trying to get them to talk but no one really talks anymore it, it's kind of like a one of those cliche you know young people today kind of scenes but it's, it's not just about that. It's really about how the old community of the, of the West has fallen away, right? That all that's really left is, is profit and who can take advantage of each other. And it's quite, quite sad. She does, though, in this chapter, eventually tell the story of how she broke her leg and how Captain Forrester helped save her when she broke her leg out on, a, on some kind of trip. And, and, and after this, they, they, he, he has to marry her and she agreed. Um, so we really are reminded, we've seen, spent so much time with the weak and feeble 
with Captain Forrester. We get a memory at the end of the novel of the strength of, of Forrester. Um, and then in the final chapter, Niall goes back to Boston after spending about a year there. He delayed his schooling for a little bit. Um, and we're just told directly by the narrator, by Willa Cather, and, you know, that the frontier's done. Quote, he had seen the end of the, an era, a sunset of the pioneer. He had come upon it when, he was already, when it was already in its glory was nearly, sorry. He had come upon it when already its glory was nearly spent. So in the Buffalo times, a traveler used to come upon the embers of a hunter's fire on the prairie. After the hunter was up and gone, the coals would be trampled out, but the ground was warm and the flattened grass where he had slept where his pony had grazed told the story. This was the very end of the road-making West. The men who, had put on, who put plains and mountains under an iron harness were old, some were poor, and even the successful ones were hunting for rest and a brief reprieve from death. It was already gone, that age, nothing could bring it back. The taste and smell and song of it, the visions those men had seen in the air and followed. These he had caught in a kind of afterglow on their face. This would always be his." Um, end quote. And I just want to say, like, the bumper I chose for this series, for this Willow Cather series, is a very famous American folk soon tune, uh, Get Along Little Dogies, which is about cowboys, of course. Um, but what strikes me about that song is the, the dogies are commodities already. And, and that's what the song's really talking about is, uh, you know, there's a line in that song, it's your misfortune is not my own. In fact, that's the title of a very great textbook of American Western history in, in that you might have that affection for the, the cow and the cow puncher may have that relationship with them. But at the end of the day, it's a commodity. They're going to slaughter it. And, and that's the undertone of that song. And that, I think, is what happened to the whole West. And, and you know, I think in the many ways this novel seems to be cap a lot of what Willa Cather was trying to say in her earlier frontier novels. Looking ahead, the other novels in this book don't really explore the frontier as much. Um, maybe to some degree. We'll, we'll, we'll keep this in mind, but I think she moves on to other themes from the look of just a summary of these novels, none of which I've read before, but there'll, there'll be five more. Uh, the Professor's House, Death Comes for the Archbishop, 1927, Shadows on the Rocks, 1931, Lucy Gayhart, 1935, and Safiria and the Slave Girl, 1940. Uh, the first one I mentioned, The Professor's House, was published in 1925. So over 15 years, she publishes a lot of more novels, but they're not really as much about the frontier west the way her early novels were. So this, this novel might be her, one of her uh, closing statements on this theme. So um, that's it. So he goes on, lives his life. He gets news about Mrs. Forrester from like a friend who he meets. And he tells the story of how she went to Buenos Aires eventually and, and got married again, but then had, had died. And that, that's, that's how the novel ends. So that's it. That's A Lost Lady. Um, so thanks for listening. And I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back doing these podcasts and getting back into American literature. Um, I had spent so much time with political writing, you know, before I took that little hiatus. Jefferson and Tocqueville and Lincoln, you know, and I, I, I wanted to get back into novels. Um, and and I, I'm excited to, to be able to do that. So uh, next up, I'm going to do the first half of The Professor's House by Willa Cather. I'll hopefully post that in a few days. Um, and, and that's it. So if you have any suggestions for this series on, on 20th century women writers that I'll hope probably be doing, doing for the next year, let me know. If you have any of your own thoughts about a lost lady, um, you know, 
you can post them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would really appreciate your feedback. So that's it for now. Again, I'm, I'm glad to be back, and, and thanks for, for listening. I will we'll see you next time with the first half of The Professor's House by Will Cather. So uh, read that if, if, if you have it available. It's, it should be a good one. Your mother was a raised away down in Texas Where the Jensen weed and the Sanders grow We'll feed you up on prickly pear foil And then send you open to old Idaho whoopee ki get along, you little doggy It's your misfortune then